This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make wind turbine lightning protection easy. If you're a wind farm operator, stop settling for damaged turbine blades and constant downtime. Get your uptime back with our strike tape lightning protection system. Learn more in today's show notes or visit weatherguardwind.com slash strike tape. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. All right, welcome back. This is the Uptime Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett, and I'm joined here for episode 26, remotely, with our lightning expert, Alan Hall. How are you? Great, Dan. Hey, uh... Just some interesting news out of Germany about some of the low-frequency testing of wind turbine noise and potential health effects. Uh, sounds like a couple-year study just got finished up, so definitely want to talk about that one today. Yeah, we haven't had uh, much research on the show of late, but I figured you were probably snooping around ResearchGate and, and all those others for, for something. It couldn't have been long, so here we are. Uh, also on the show today, we're going to talk about uh, a broken blade in Ohio, which you think is probably lightning related, but they don't really have a strong cause yet. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, a really big uh, lightning strike record in Florida, something like almost off the charts, a little bit of uh, offshore wind news uh, from New Jersey and a big acquisition between Polytech, uh, well not between, but Polytech acquiring uh, Phosphorex, uh, which is a sensor technology company. And lastly, we'll talk a little bit about that low frequency noise uh, study and just talk a little bit about uh, small wind turbines because that's something we haven't covered too much. We've covered different types like the Typhoon turbine and, and sort of different variations, but the small wind turbine market is out there and it's growing and it's becoming more and more viable as technology increases. So we'll chat a little bit about that. So let's start with this broken blade. So you kind of have like this theory um, and it doesn't seem like they really know what's going on yet. Like they just have like one drone photo right. and they're doing some, uh, but it's, it's a pretty impressive photo. Like the blade broke off very close to the root and it was only what, six months just old. Just about. So this really, sh really shouldn't happen. Right. So w what's your, what's your take on this? Well, there's some discussion online about it and, and they were talking about possible overspeed. So an overspeed condition happens when there's large wind speeds the control system for the turbine doesn't address those high speeds and, sh and essentially feather the blades and slow down the, the rotation, slow right? Down. So you yeah. get these overload, structural overload conditions. That doesn't seem likely uh, just because the blade, well, it's a new turbine. So usually overspeed conditions happen on failure modes on older turbines as systems don't work like they were intended because of... Uh, design problems or aging yeah. problems, right? Uh, so to have it happen on a relatively new turbine is unusual. And it's a V150, Vessus V150, which is a pretty good size wind turbine. And what we have noticed on some wind turbine blades over time is that when uh, lightning can occur to those blades, and if you happen to damage the carbon fiber, a lot of these have carbon fiber in them. If you damage the carbon fiber, spar or the main internal structure inside of it, you can get this delayed 
damage effect where as it as the blade continues to spin you get this this fracture happening and eventually the the blade lets go and that is not especially a couple of years ago it was a lot more common so it's it's surprising to see that now because and Dan it kind of works like this you know and we were talked about in previous episodes of all the structural testing that happens on wind turbine blades right so mm-hmm. they design them to take at, at just absurd levels of wind and rotational speed they're over designed right so they're over designed and they yeah. they test them they don't put them in the field and find out they actually take them to a facility and they bend and try to break the blades so to have a blade break like that says it way exceeded its structural limitations uh, design limitations it's either did that and then maybe there's some huge wind effect but it only affected this one turbine or there is some sort of manufacturing defect in the blade, right? There's some kinking of the, of, the, of the fabrics inside and some sort of stress loading at this down near the hub, and that causes it to fail. Or you've had some damage from a lightning strike, and it's just sort of a delayed effect. Those are kind of your three options there. Now, it, it, I think the thing about this one is there hasn't been a lot of news about it, besides that it, it fell yeah. off, right? It didn't really fall off. It snapped, and it kind of snapped and then fell against the tower, and it was just dangling mm-hmm. there, um, which has got to make it exciting because someone's got to get that off, right? So someone's got to, pull, <laughs> right? So you got to get a crane up there. You're going to try to pull that off and not drop that massive blade onto the ground and have it like bang into the tower or do something even worse. So, uh, you know, if it had fallen and hit and landed on the ground, you're kind of like, oh, okay, it's off. So we can take the crane up and pull the rest of the assembly off. With that blade dangling there, <laughs> it's going to be uh, some interesting days and some engineering work to, to figure out how to get that safely down and then inspect it. Yeah, I wonder if... Uh, what, what do you think Spider-Man's hourly rate is here? <laughs> he's, probably, he's probably pretty expensive. Whatever he can get. But that seems like the move. You just cut it loose, then he grabs it and just lets it gently come down, like swings it down. tons? That seems like the move well, here. Well, how many tons that thing Ooh. is? Yeah, it's that blade is... This is Spider-Man we're talking yeah, well, about, yeah. all right? Come on. He could do anything. Well, it's, um, yeah. But no, that does seem like a, like a really difficult rescue for this turbine i mean to go up there and then i guess some guys would be on lines and hack it free oh I, I, I don't, or something i, mean, I, don't, I don't know, know. that seems really dangerous it does they're gonna have to try to secure that dangling blade or hope that it falls off mm-hmm. on its own try to secure it somehow uh maybe secure it to the tower and try to unbolt the rest of it yeah. like the, the, that thing is so fraught with highly loaded composite structure i i no one wants going to be wanting to get around that with it not being secured no <laughs> right yeah you think of like saw you know cutting down a tree with a chainsaw and just yeah. you know when it starts to go i mean and with these having all these like you said these crazy some elastic some less elastic materials yep. in there all under yep. load just that seems yeah. terrifying yeah so it, yeah it will not be a guy with the hacksaw <laughs> cutting that down or at least i hope not Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. So, all right, well, I guess we'll keep monitoring that one and see what happens and maybe your hypothesis will be proved to be true, but it do, it does seem suspect that such a big thing that's going to have so many quality checks would have such a big internal defect out of the factory. Right. It'd be unusual to snap like that. I mean, that it definitely happens, but you just never know, I guess. I don't right. know. Right. Which I mean, even buildings, even buildings sometimes have, you know, a a weld that wasn't quite inspected right and just like wasn't quite there and then over time and 
you never know. Yeah, but it does seem unlikely. I, I always try to equate it to other industries that I participate in, and obviously, I'm tied to the aircraft industry. Think of this thing like an aircraft wing. An aircraft wing doesn't just fold like that. There would be no possible mm-hmm. way that that wing would fold. And so you have some weird failure mode that's going on here that needs to be addressed. Uh, because in any, if it's a control system, like there's some control logic in the cell, and then the cell that let the uh, rotors overspeed, that should not happen. That should be dual fault redundant, right? It's, there's just multiple layers of protections that should be built into the thing so that never occurs and so either you you blew by all those and had this blade come apart or something significant is happening and i I know in a previous episode we talked about the number of blade failures like a half a percent per year Mm -hmm. well that's think about a half a percent of the airplanes coming out the factory just fell out of the sky randomly right we, we kind of had that on some level with the 737 and look how the world stopped flying 737s yeah. now there's people on them that makes a it makes a huge difference but it's not you're not introducing a whole different system of logic when you try to f- make sure that these events don't happen you should you should be having um, on the engineering side, it must be going through some sort of safety process to make sure these events don't happen. So that's why that's why I think it's something abnormal, like a lightning strike event and a delayed failure or or yeah. damage in shipping, right? Something that you just don't have a lot of control over sometimes. Um, man, you just hate to see these things happen because now now if you've had this opposition to some wind turbines up in the Great Lakes region, Ohio is on the Great Lakes. So you just, you know, you kind of built yourself uh, an, a, an icon for the opposition to wind turbines to just keep holding up like, hey, look, this wind turbine came apart. Ha, ha, ha. You know, these things aren't ready for prime time. Well, that's not true, but we can't keep giving yeah. everybody ammunition like that either. We got to stop doing that. Well, so other interesting stories. So this is, uh, I guess, more of a LinkedIn post from Scientific Lightning Solutions. So a 200 kiloamp lightning strike, and they're saying this is kind of rare because it's a negative polarity lightning event. So can you talk about this a little bit? What's the difference between negative and positive? And Uh, um, negative moves. How abnormally big is this? Uh, It's okay. So from Aircraft certification standards, uh, 200 kiloamp strike is like a less than 1% event, half a percent event. I have to go back and look, but it's pretty rare, particularly in the United States. Uh, and that's why when it popped up on, on news sources, I thought, wow, that is pretty rare. So you don't see that a lot. And you don't see photographs of it very often either. So yeah. a negative lightning strike is you're moving negative charge from the cloud, which is usually in the bottom of the cloud, down to Earth. So that's the most common form of lightning strike in the United States and around the world is this negative charge at the bottom of the cloud um, discharging in- into the ground. So that's normal. But the amplitude, and this is why they, they mentioned it, was it was it was a 200 kiloamp negative strike, which is pretty rare. And then it had, I think it had four subsequent flashes. I think there were a total of five strokes in, in the in the lightning event. Mm-hmm. And their system, because there's there's this is down at uh, 
essentially Cape Canaveral, right? And they're, they have a, a system down there to monitor lightning strikes around the Cape because it's important to know if, if your rocket has gotten struck or has been a, a near strike to the rocket. You need They have procedures to go evaluate those things. So their system caught it, caught all the lightning strokes, and then uh, they were making a, a comparison to other... Uh, electronic means of measuring lightning strokes, and it wasn't as accurate as their system. So they were just trying to play off the fact that they had a more accurate system for this. Gotcha. For and that's not. It's not rocket science. It's just if you're focused yeah. on one particular area and that's all you do, then yeah, sure, you're going to have better better representation than a global lightning protection lightning detection system that's that can check lightning anywhere it just it's not going to be as sensitive to what you can pick up in one location so yeah okay i i get it but uh remember that down in florida at least pre-covid uh there's there are a lot of light there are a lot of lightning strikes of aircraft down there and there's a lot of flights yeah. right everybody wants to go to orlando miami fort lauderdale tampa so there are a lot of lightning strikes in the summertime, and to see one of those strikes reach that, which would be the FAA peak test level, which is 200,000 amps strike, uh, is I would say it'd be unusual, right? We we, we mm-hmm. always test things in wind turbines. We tested 200,000 amps uh, with an action integral of of up to 10 million, eight to 10 million, and the FAA world. Airplane world and EASA, all, all the airplane stuff is taught is tested to two hundred thousand amps and an extra growth of two million, so it's about one fifth the energy. And to have those have a, a strike actually recorded like that in a place where aircraft fly or wind turbines are installed is it, it really tells you like, hey, we're not necessarily testing above what is actually occurring, which is like when we're talking about the wind turbine blade blade coming off. You always want to test to yeah higher levels than what actually Beyond. happens yeah for right sure. so now we've got a, rec- a record of a lightning strike that is equal to roughly what the requirement is for aircraft and wind turbines so there may not be a lot of design margin in that that's that's yeah. that's what mm-hmm. kicked with me when i saw this it's like ooh. usually you know the negative lightning strikes are like 30 to forty thousand amps in the united states so you know you you tested at 200, most strikes are in the 30 to 40,000 amp range, and then you see one at 200,000 amps, like, ooh, uh, yeah, that's going to do a lot of damage, a lot of damage. So I, I think in the lightning community, there's been a lot of discussion, particularly with um, uh, some of the Japanese recorded lightning strikes. The, the, uh, the Japanese have done a good job of measuring lightning strikes for a number of years. And because, because of where they are on the earth and the way that thunderstorms develop over there, they've seen lightning strikes, 300,000 amps, uh, you know, 400,000 amps, Yikes. right. And, and action integrals that are just off the charts. Uh, so, you know, it's like anything else. It takes industry a long time to get off what they have done to try to adapt to the to what we now know, there's gonna be there'll be a lot of pushback, mm-hmm. and I know, I know the Japanese some of the Japanese winter manufacturers have been really pushing for higher test limits on on wind turbines, and I think rightly so because they're measuring them. They should <laughs> you should rightly test at what you're clearly measuring out on the on the ocean or on 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 shore, uh, and I, I I I'm pretty sure that Boeing aircraft and probably airbus are testing to levels higher than what the easa faa require 
because um, that philosophy, that engineering philosophy is test to the worst case plus margin. So you never have the worst yeah. case happen to you. Yeah. Yeah. So these absolutely. data points are important, really important. Well, and speaking of which, you know, especially as the U.S. is getting more comfortable, especially with offshore wind, um, you know, you just don't want to see more hurdles like this present themselves where we're suddenly taking more lightning damage and we're not testing and and we're about to. So like New Jersey is taking applications now for up to 2,400 more megawatts of wind power offshore, which their governor sounds like they're all really excited about the project. Of course, they're trying to get to 7,500 megawatts of offshore power by 2035, but they think this is a big piece of their COVID recovery, which seems like a good move for everyone involved, a lot of jobs and uh, good for the environment. So, I mean, do you see it that well, way? Well, Dan, did they actually say the number of wind turbines they're talking about installing? Because if it's a two megawatt, no, 1,200 no. wind turbines off the coast of New Jersey, I'm not sure how that would work. <laughs> there is... There is uh, boating and shipping happening along the coast of New Jersey. So, you know, maybe they're talking about 10 megawatt plus, 12 megawatt plus kind of wind turbines out there. Uh, uh, yeah, there's, it's, uh, wind turbines are a large industrial uh, business. So it takes a lot of people to, to, uh, to design and construct and to deliver these wind turbines. So if the, if New Jersey is, is a, proponent of wind turbines now whether they get the factories to happen in new jersey who knows because there's there's a lot about taxation and states like delaware and some others don't have as much corporate taxation so a lot of um, there's a lot of shuffling around that happens up and down the northeast corridor of the united states based on what the taxes are and what the the local situations are mm-hmm. but uh i just you know, Dan, it's just like we had these discussions about some of the larger, like automotive companies, and well, even like cases like Boeing and something that, which is a huge um, portion of the United States gross domestic product. Uh, the the time for them to take to spin up is a couple of years to do anything. So if we want to see something out of this New Jersey effort, it's not going to be in 2020. We'd be lucky to see it in 2021. It's more like 2022, 23 sort of numbers. So I, I get the concept and politicians always want to get reelected, but I don't think it's going to be an immediate, mm-hmm. and that's not going to be an immediate thing that's going to happen. I don't see it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd imagine, I mean, what the average offshore wind turbines closer to what, six megawatts. Yep. So I'd imagine that anything new these days is probably going to be closer to double digits, if not, you know, into mm-hmm. double digits. So yeah. when I see 2,400, I think of, you know, 200, Halley 8Xs yeah. or, you know, right. SG14222DDs, you know, whatever. <laughs> yes. You just can't say that name without laughing, no, right? It, it, they they got to um, find another name. Come on. <laughs> I know. Yeah. The Halley 8X, it's a cool yeah, name. Yeah, it is. So, well, and speaking of which, so obviously if you, and this is, I think it's good that the industry is going this way, you know, with lightning protection and better testing and better sensors. You know, if you have a huge wind farm offshore, and this is like the first for your state, you know, for New Jersey, for example, they they need to get it right. They don't want to have huge maintenance problems. So one of the uh, O&M companies, Polytech, they just acquired Phosphorex um, to kind of like round out their portfolio. And I know they're absorbing like a really good sales force and some other things. So what's your your take on the Polytech deal? Um, 
And tell us a little bit about PhosphorX's uh, technology that they're acquiring. So PhosphorX uh, deals in fiber optic sensing of all kinds of things. Uh, so fiber optic technology has evolved a lot in the last 20 years. It was originally just a means of communication and most likely your internet services provided and some portion by fiber optics and any sort of telephone thing today uh, because of how much information you can shove through it. But the other thing about fiber optics is you can also use it to sense um, stress. Uh, in some cases, it can be used to detect things like lightning current. So there are very unique fiber optic light things that can be done to um, instrument or monitor th things like wind turbines. And the thing about a wind turbine is if you're trying to detect early stresses in blades, the way we would do it in the olden times back in the 80s we just put these basically metallic strain gazers around and just kind of glue them onto the blade and then uh, run some copper wire down to a essentially a computer that sits there and monitors how much strain is in each one of these little sensors problem is from a lightning protection standpoint all these little sensors become little lightning rods and so you don't want to do that so if you're going to have a non-conductive way, like fiber optics, then you can get the same amount of information, but not mess with the lightning protection system. So the fiber optics uh, knowledge, and it's a really technical area. I mean, like NASA has been doing some interesting mm -hmm. things. There's a lot of, um, you don't see a lot of it, but there's a lot of real delicate uh, engineering going on in fiber optics. Now, Polytech has already their own uh, little fiber optic detection system but there must be some sort of technology difference between the two. So Polytech grab hold of this additional technology. Plus, um, Phosphorex has their own uh, sales staff, it sounds like. They got 100 employees. So some portion of that must be sales staff, which you got to have in wind turbines, to um, promote this thing. So it's sort of a technology agreement, but a sales agreement, more than likely. Uh, and it's going to be productive. And the thing about Polytech right now, like uh, the other news from Polytech is they're building a new headquarters um, because they've been in this sort of a, a cramped location for a while. So they're going to build a brand new headquarters. Like that's fantastic, right? So what's happening like in the wind turbine manufacturing area, the uh, aftermarket OEM, you know, from year five to year 20 uh, support market is consolidating also. Polytech being one of those players, you see it in like Sky Specs and the, you know, sort of being that leader of the United States and, and significant parts of the world in terms of drone measurements. That industry is consolidating rapidly also. So you're kind of getting these larger players popping up around uh, that are claiming their territory in a sense as to what they can provide. Now, that brings economies of scales. Obviously, it may bring more productivity in terms of ideas and concepts uh, because you have the cash to put in some things like a fiber optic system. Mm -hmm. which is, playing with fiber optics is not cheap. There's nothing about that that's playing with those things are cheap. Uh, so it does sort of maybe raise the stakes a little bit so that you will maybe see more fiber optics, which would be great. Uh, and then does it make it less lightning sensitive? Yeah, it's even better, right? So as we talk about trying to get wind turbine blades from year five to year 20 when it's outside the warranty period, having detection methods like this, this blade in Ohio that broke, if if they had some early sort of failure, mm -hmm. an optical system could have detected that and shut down the turbine and got it and got a technician out there to take a look at it. Uh, that's the that's the beauty of this for these fiber optic systems that I think if you're the insurance companies, 
you're going to start demanding that there's some internal monitoring of these wind turbine blades. We're not going to just let them stick out there for 20 years and don't have any inspections or monitoring of what's going on inside. So Polytech has set itself up to be sort of one of the leaders in that area, if not the leader right now. Big change. Big change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you said, you just don't want to stick these things out, especially in the middle of the ocean, especially if you're New Jersey, putting all this money into it, <laughs> for example. And it's like, oh, what's going to happen to them? We don't really know. Yeah, you don't hit them so. when I'm falling into the water either, right? That's, nobody wins in that situation. It just goes wrong quickly. All right. So in our engineering segment here, let's first jump to this uh, this German study that we referenced earlier. So obviously noise is a major concern, right? right? And people are researching this to see if it there's an impact on wildlife, obviously on uh, humans when they're, these turbines are in a community where they're relatively close to, to houses and businesses. So um, a major study found that there's no real link between turbine noise um, and harm. But, you know, what were some of the methods and, and what did you take from this study? Well, at least they were doing a study. And there's been a couple of studies looking at similar things. In the United States has been a couple and then this one in Germany. There seems to be some concern that the low-level vibrations and wind noise are keeping people up at night, giving insomnia, and then, you know, it goes, it goes all mm. the way to the extremes of, well, it's giving me cancer. So from sleepless nights to cancer is sort of the realm that you're trying to deal with and trying to see yeah. there's any correlation now. So far, it's sort of like the cell phone thing back in the 90s and um, early 2000s about cell phone risks. Uh, there, there doesn't seem to be much of a correlation or any correlation between wind turbine noise and health issues. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't just kind of keep track of it also. And, and in, in today's Google world, uh, it's not hard to to look and, and sort of monitor what's happening in the area around you, particularly health risk. But uh, you, you got to be careful too, because it seem, uh, it's very easy to, to convince yourself that, uh, you know, if, if uh, three people in, in a mile's radius have the same form of cancer or some certain other disease, uh, COVID, uh, that there's some correlation to an external an external device chemical noise uh, and that may or may mm -hmm. not be the case right this is why you try to do correlation studies and try to determine cause somewhat of cause and effect um, because the, there should be some sort of numerical uh, connection between the two and how strongly correlated are those things compared to a whole variety of other variables that are out there so rarely is it anything a single variable problem it's just just life right yeah uh, so you know, to, to get to get uh, data and to have some studies being done is always good. We can add it to the list of other things that are that are been out there. But I think everybody should be vigilant, right? And no matter what we're dealing with in wind turbines, from uh, obviously they take you know petroleum products. There's oils. There's cleaners and stuff used in. There's you know there's there's current running around in the ground too all the time. Uh, so you know there are things that are happening that are not just like open nature. So it, it, mm -hmm. I think it's good it's good to be vigilant there and and to try to make sure we're keeping people healthy. That's the whole point. Yeah, and if you know if someone's not doing these studies like you said, then suddenly we get way far down and it's like oh right. 
something really bad's been happening this whole time. And then that's also seems like ripe for like a cover up or like, right. it's like this was we should have done something about this. And now it's pretty too far, too far gone to, you know, it's good to catch things early, especially when big business and big money is right. concerned, because these are expensive uh, industries. Right, they are. So speaking of which, uh, you know, with as far as turbines within communities, um, growing popularity for smaller wind turbines, especially with farms, communities that are pretty far off the grid. So, you know, and these range from, you know, there's a very popular model, the uh, the Air uh, 40 that pumps out 40 kilowatt hours per month, which is not a lot, right? Maybe 5% of a household's uh, needs. And they go up to, you know, maybe a turbine that'll, um, so Britwin makes one that'll power 12 average homes uh, for a year. So, you know, there's obviously some scale from all the way from like almost little toy ones that provide 5% of your monthly power all the way up to ones like the Halley 8X, which will power 300 homes and 24 hours worth of output, which is insanity. Um, but with these small windmills, let's just touch on a, on a briefly today, but what, uh, do you see these being more viable? I mean, obviously technology is really increasing. Like you see the stuff Tesla's doing, I mean, are, is it? Do you think in five years that more of these will be pumping out a good amount of power from a pretty small frame? Are the generators really increasing in efficiency that fast, or what? Do you, what, what are your predictions? Well, it's it's a similar industry to any other uh, industry where there's been a lot of, of as the industry grows, the smaller end of it picks up with it. It just takes all the technology that's left behind from everybody else, so they're just sort of falling behind mm-hmm. the big players, and. The blade designs are very aerodynamic. Uh, they're using composites in the blade designs, but they didn't used to do that years ago. Um, these be well, these be on a, a lot of them are made out of wood, and now they're using a lot of fiberglass, and probably some that are carbon fiber. And the generators mm-hmm. have gotten a lot more sophisticated. There's a lot more electronics associated with them for output controls, and uh, the efficiency's up also, which makes them and and at the same time prices are starting to come down. So for rural applications, it starts to make a lot of sense, like particularly for agricultural areas. Like if you need to pump water uh, and you need to pump water on the, on the back 40 somewhere and you don't want to run power wires all the way out there, well, what do you do? Well, you put yeah. a wind turbine out there, right? And then you got power and when the wind blows, you, you're pumping water. Uh, those, those things make a lot of sense. And the the little video you passed along to me today was, was uh, talking. That was Brit. Was that Brit Power? Is that what the name of the company was? I don't want to. Brit, Brit Wind. Wind. Sorry, yeah. Brit Wind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was fascinating because they're talking about the difference in wind speeds between uh, Scotland and England. That Scotland basically had double the wind speeds, roughly, compared to England, and that meant they could produce yeah. essentially um, eight times more power. Eight, eight times. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So if I'm in Scotland and I and Scotland's a beautiful area, but if it has better winds, so to speak, and you you're out in a rural location where you have farm animals and and things going on, then and you just, not maybe you don't want to pay the electric prices that you pay when you live rurally like that, then these wind turbines start to make a lot of sense. And we've we as a, as a company as WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, we've gotten phone calls about that. Like, hey, can you direct us to uh, a company that leases wind turbines? We'd like to lease a wind turbine. And there's companies that are leasing wind turbines in Scotland right now. Yeah, they say, you provide the ground, we'll provide the wind turbine. 
that's sort of a great combination. That's that's really some forward thinking there. That's they can provide power to you. They just let you. You're just sort of loaning them the space to put the wind turbine up. Uh, and there's really no lose lose in that. It's everybody's wins. So there's some really creative ideas like that. But I think the smaller winter market, because you got the Vestuses, you got the the GEs and Siemens Gamesas and Nordex, and you got all, and and you know all the all the winter manufacturers in 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 India and China are are huge companies uh, that the smaller probably uh, more ubiquitous uh, wind turbines are on the smaller end. And it can really make a big difference. So we're keeping our ear to the ground here a little bit because as the smaller wind turbines aren't as small as they once were, they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger because more, as soon as people realize what they can power with them, they want to power more, right? So if I can power my pumps and my lights in my in my barn, why can't I then not power uh, some part of the house with it? Yeah, let's do my house right. too. Or, or, yeah, or my not? neighbor's house, mm-hmm. right? Let's go in it together. Let's just share the cost of this thing. So... Uh, when that happens, you know the the towers get a little bit taller, the blades get more aerodynamic, they get, get made out of fiberglass typically, and they become lightning rods. And uh, we're trying to say, hey, you probably want to put some lightning protection on these things because you're starting to depend on them more than you ever have in the past. And if it went down, what does it mean for you? Uh, so uh, we're we're keeping track of the small wind turbine market, but there is a lot of interest in it. We get calls, oh two, three, four times a week about small wind turbines and, and and where to find them and how to install them and how to provide lightning protection to them. So it's a growing marketplace. It's surprising um, how big that industry is. Yeah, I mean, it, like you said, with all the advances and with the trickle down of technology and with battery storage, especially getting yeah. better, where you could say, hey, I'm going to have a power wall in my house. I have all this extra battery in case the, you know, we generate more than we need. And it just seems like this is all going to sort of start to tie together, you know, economically and and for the planet. Yeah. So so yeah, it's interesting. It's it interesting is. stuff. We're we'll definitely chat more about that as we uh, start to investigate more of the different manufacturers and and uh, technologies and stuff like that. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up today's episode of Uptime. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a regular here, thank you for your continued support. Please subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from each show. For Alan and all of us at WeatherGuard, stay safe and we'll see you next week. Is downtime causing you financial pain and putting a stop to your power production for months on end? It's no secret, lightning strike damage is a major cause of wind turbine downtime. This damage is preventable with our easy-to-install strike tape lightning protection system for wind turbine blades. Our incredible engineering, build quality, materials, and edge sealants withstand up to five times more abuse in the toughest weather and lightning conditions. And we've got the research to prove it. If you're tired of constant downtime, we can help. Reach out to us at weatherguardwind.com and schedule a free call. We'll get your uptime back in no time.